Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. For many white-collar professionals in the U.S., our careers are kind of like religion. Seriously, we look primarily to our jobs to provide us with a sense of self-worth, meaning, social status, even community. But this is a lot to ask of any job, no matter how good a fit it is. And at some point in adulthood, even if your career has been a wild success, most of us start to ask ourselves a very different question. Are we working to live or living to work? Simone Stalzoff explores this question and so many more in his new book, The Good Enough Job. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro and Fermina Kim. Every single one of us is more than who we are at work. And as labor journalist Sarah Jaffe once wrote, work won't love you back. Simone Stolzoff has wanted to be a journalist, a designer, a lawyer, a diplomat, a poet, and a shortstop for the San Francisco Giants. Most recently, he's wanted to be a published author, and he is one now, of the new book, The Good Enough Job. We'll talk with him this hour about what kind of fulfillment we can realistically expect from work and how to go beyond thinking about our work-life balance to questioning our personal and societal relationships with work. So, Simone, I guess my first question for you is, what was your first answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. It's changed a lot over the years. As you mentioned in that intro, I've wanted to work in a number of different industries. And in my 20s, I actually played Goldilocks with all of these different careers. I worked in tech and I worked in advertising and I worked in design, all the while looking for a vocational soulmate, looking for a job that could help me self-actualize. I love that phrase, self-actualize. So so to use another phrase uh, of a similar bent, What's wrong with following your bliss? Isn't it better to pursue or try to pursue a dream career than to drift aimlessly into something because maybe that's what your parents wanted or it provides you with enough money just so you can have a comfortable life? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with looking to work for a identity or a source of meaning. But I think it becomes problematic when it becomes the sole source of identity and meaning in your life. I've so many people have found out in the past few years with the pandemic, if your job is your identity and you lose your job, what's left? 
But then I think there's also a few more pernicious risks that have revealed themselves through the research for the book. On one hand, if we are always expecting a job to be a dream, to be a love, it can create a lot of room for disappointment when you're confronted with the inevitable mundane or monotonous parts of every line of work. And then there's the idea that if we center work, we can neglect other sides of who we are. We are all more than just workers. And so if you are looking for a job as to be the sole source of self-completion in your life, it can be a burden that our jobs are not necessarily designed to bear. One of the people you talked to for this book, uh, Fobazi Itar, coined a term uh, for this I just loved it. it. To describe her experience as, as a librarian, she called it vocational awe. And I'm going to read a little passage uh, from the chapter where you talk about her research into these questions. Promoting the message that a profession is inherently righteous allows people in positions of power to characterize injustices as isolated incidents rather than systemic failures, even if they're even discussed at all. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Like if if we wander like, I don't know, <laughs> naive idiots, uh, you know, into our dream vocation, uh, we might we might see our disappointments as uh, internal ones, uh, you know, reflective of our own failures instead of saying what's wrong with the way this industry is being operated. Yeah, I think this is on full display right now with, say, the, the writer's strike in, in Hollywood or some of the other strikes going on around the world. When we frame a job as a calling or as a labor of love, it can actively obscure a lot of the injustices that exist within these different lines of work. It was on full display during the pandemic when we called workers essential and yet rarely gave them the compensation and protections commensurate with the severity of the work they were doing. So the, the term vocational awe, which was coined by this librarian named Fobazi Itar, refers to this perceived righteousness that certain industries have, this sort of halo effect that can cover up a lot of the exploitation or injustice that exists within them. When we're telling educators, for example, that they are doing God's work, but rarely giving them the compensation or recognition that they deserve, or when we are telling healthcare workers that they are essential and yet not providing necessary protections in order to honor the, the severity of their work, this rhetoric around labors of love, or in Fobazi's case, vocational awe, can actually serve not serve workers and be a disservice to their ability to advocate for what they deserve. I wondered, though, as I was reading this book, how much this is um, this is a set of questions that, that that it's mostly white collar workers who need to confront this. Like, as a labor journalist myself, I, I've encountered way fewer people who are who are working in gig work or blue collar work who who share any sense of delusion or you know a, a false sense of trust compassion uh, you know about uh, the uh, the way they're being exploited they they see it with clear eyes it's much easier to reject company calls to worship work in in blatantly commercial fields like manufacturing breakfast cereal for instance or beer yeah, I think there are two separate issues that we're discussing. And I think it's important to underline that the majority of Americans don't work to self-actualize. They work to survive. 
But the reason why I chose to focus on white-collar workers in the book is a fewfold. One is they're less likely to have other sources of meaning and identity in their lives. If you look at the decline of institutions like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups, it's left a void where many Americans are still needing belonging and purpose and meaning in their life and turning to the place where they spend the majority of the time, the office, to try and fulfill all of those needs. Second, you know, if you look across different cultures and different countries, white-collar workers are the most likely to be looking to work to be a stand-in for some of those other sources of meaning and purpose in their life. Certainly, even asking yourself the question, what do I want to do, necessitates a certain level of privilege. It's a question that people with options can afford to entertain. And yet, we still live in a culture of what I call workism, which is a term from the journalist Derek Thompson, where our productivity and our self-worth and our identity are so tightly bound. I love something uh, that you quote uh, from a woman, Megan, a a Brooklyn journalist originally from Berkeley you talked to. She says, "I, I like what I do, but I do wonder what percentage of my drive to work all the time is that I truly love it and how much is that I don't know what else to do with myself. Yeah, there's sort of a chicken and an egg problem that exists with many of the workers that I talk to where they work all the time and so they don't know who they are when they're not working and they're not sure what to do when they're not working and so they work all the time. I think this is particularly common among you know, type A ambitious professionals who have demanding careers, people like Megan who their name is on the majority of the work that they're putting out into the world. But unless we take an active role in cultivating those other sides of ourselves, we can be left hung out to dry, as, as Megan was, as I profile in the book, and as so many people were over the course of the last few years. You know, America has always been a nation obsessed with the myth of the rugged, self-made individual, and it always has been a myth. When when is it that that uh, middle class or white collar America began to uh, sort of detach itself from the reality of of capitalism, red and tooth and claw? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how long of a lens you want to take. If you go to the foundation of our country, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were really the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. But the trend that I really chronicle in the book is starts around the 1970s or so, where you see both stagnant wages and a decline of organized religion, some of those other sources of meaning that I talked about, paired with some of this rhetoric from corporations and companies that you can come here and, and do the best work in of your life. Fast forward to the last decade or two, and we started plastering always do what you love on the walls of our co-working spaces. We treat CEOs like celebrities. We live in a culture that really exalts work as a primary means of being in this life. And I think the the risks have, have laid themselves to, to be seen by everyone in the past few years as everyone's relationship to their work changed to a certain degree. And we found out that maybe these expectations that we're placing on our jobs are not actually, are misplaced, or could be placed elsewhere. Do you think this is a, a generational thing? Like like if you're the child of a, of a baby boomer, 
uh, you know, you're you're more likely to have been raised with the idea that you should follow your bliss versus if you're the child of a Gen Xer, uh, you you practically left the ru- uh, the womb cynical. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the quote, my grandfather was in the military so that my father could be an engineer so that I could be a poet. <laughs> I definitely think there is something generational about this, and this is borne out in my own family history. You know, my, my family's Italian, and my grandma grew up in a, a small town where, you know, all of her children still live. And, you know, first and foremost, she was a, a woman of, of God, a woman of faith. And she was a mother and a grandmother and a, a fresh pasta maker. And for her career, she she worked as a barista and she enjoyed her work. She she loved it, actually. But it did not define her. And then, you know, my parents, who are kind of right on right on the verge of uh, the boomer generation, they they'd very much look to work as a means of economic stability in addition to being personal fulfillment. They are both psychologists and they work as a, a means to an end. And then, you know, you come to, to my generation. I'm smack dab in the middle of the millennials. And I was raised with certain scripts about, you know, follow your passion, do what you love, and never work a day in your life. And I think, like many of my peers, I really took that to heart. I felt that if I hadn't found my dream job, that I should keep searching, that I shouldn't settle. And now I think we're having a pushback to that movement where many millennials are seeing the shortcomings of that worldview. We're talking about the role our jobs play in shaping our identities, our social identities here in the U.S., why so many of us are after dream jobs and what it means to not separate who we are from what we do. Uh, we're talking, of course, with Simone Stolsoff, journalist and author of The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. What's your story? Do you have or have you worked a dream job? What have you learned from that experience? Experience. Give us a ring right now and join the conversation. 866-733-6786. Now again, that you've picked up the phone, 866-733-6786. Or email us at forum at kqed.org. Whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and I'm talking with Simone Stolzoff, author of The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Uh, what's your story, listeners? Join the conversation. I'm going to give out that phone number again, even though the phones are lighting up. 
there's plenty of time for you to be part of this conversation and share your experience, your thoughts about what it means to be a working person in America today. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, and we are monitoring those accounts. So, I, you know... Uh, Simona, you talked to a hundred people uh, for this book. Were you genuinely surprised by any of the people you talked to, the, the experience they described? Yeah, many of them. You know, I think the spectrum of kind of cliche to novel really runs the the gamut in the book. I think some of the workers that are, I was most surprised by were those who really cultivated an active identity outside of work. So people whose work was more of a paycheck than a passion or a means of self-actualization. And that's, it was surprising to me in so far as we were taught that the goal of our lives, the goal of our careers, was really to find work that allows us to be the truest versions of ourself. But I found that many of the people that were happiest actually treated work for what it was, a, a paycheck, an economic contract, and find, found the majority of their meaning and identity outside of the office. And and these are people who are working white-collar jobs, who are, I, I'm presuming, doctors, teachers, scientists? Yeah, you know, perhaps the most expected story in the book was that of a, a Wall Street banker. And he, in a very relatable way, was always looking for the next rung on the career ladder to grab. He made top grades in high school and went to an Ivy League college. And once he was there, he looked at the most lucrative potential job options for himself and narrowed it down to banker or lawyer or doctor or engineer, chose finance, went to work on Wall Street, rose the ranks of his Wall Street asset management firm and became the youngest ever managing director. And then from his perch at the at the top of the organization chart, he realized that he was he was playing a game that he didn't actually want to win. He was he was climbing a ladder he didn't want to be on and he looked around at the people that were above him in his organization and found that no, I don't want their life. I am living a life that doesn't actually align with my own values. And, you know, I won't spoil the ending of the chapter, but I think it's a very common problem that ambitious professionals have. If they are told that success is the same as making a lot of money, they don't actually take the time to consult with what is their definition of success, what would make their life meaningful. And as we've referenced earlier, uh, oftentimes we're unconsciously carrying forward our parents' definition of success. Very much so. You know, we inherit all of these scripts from around us for what we're told is prestigious or what is the pursuit of status. And I think those things can really warp our definition of what we ourselves value. When you're just making decisions based on what others or what the market value, they can obscure what you yourself care about. But I think there's also risk on the other end of the spectrum, too, where if you are just consulting with what you value without considering what you can be paid for or what the market values, it can set you up into a position where, for example, you assume a lot of graduate student debt in order to pursue a degree that doesn't lead to stable job prospects on the other side. Or you take a big risk to pursue art, but you're so consumed with how you're going to pay rent that you can't actually focus on the art that you hope to create. And so I think the, the key is how do you marry those two? How do you hold what the world values in one hand 
and what you value on the other hand and try and find a career at their intersection. One listener writes, I've lived in other countries, and the work-life balance is so much better handled. My husband has just lived through the collapse of one of the three banks, and I can see how he's a victim of all of the myths of the work ethic, workism, and other pratfalls of our voracious capitalism structure. Peter tweets, years ago, I concluded we could benefit from much less ambition. I think it's self-evident that ambition for work without regard to value to the human race or the earth is destructive. Let's go to the phone na- phones now. We've got Chris in North Bay. Hi, Chris. Hey, good morning. Good um, morning. Hi. Hi. So my, uh, I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear, uh, I'll take the call off or the answer off the air, but I had a two-part career, one in high-tech sales, and then I transitioned to implementing that technology in a large IT healthcare organization. And I enjoyed what I did, but I had my hobbies that were after hours at weekends and vacation time that I loved. And I retired a few years ago. And looking back at that experience, you know, some of my buddies are like, man, you should have done this hobby thing as a career. And I think, but then it would have been work. So the (laughs) idea for me anyway was work was, yeah, I needed to enjoy it. And I had changed jobs a couple of times and landed in a spot I enjoyed, but wouldn't have called it my passion really ever. Um, But the passion I wouldn't want it, I wouldn't have wanted the pressure, if you want to call it that, of having to perform at my passion as a job. So just my observation. Thank you so much for that, Chris. I, I mean, that is an observation I have seen uh, among friends and family uh, over many years, Simone. I, I, I don't know if you saw that in, in your research for this book. Yeah, I think we all know it at an individual level. If you turn what you're passionate about into work, it can really change your relationship to your passion. That all is to say that I don't think it's necessarily problematic to align your interests with what you do for work. But much as an investor benefits from cultivating different stocks in their portfolio, we too benefit from being able to cultivate different identities to have a more diversified identity portfolio. And it sounds like that's exactly what Chris had. He had his work, which was important, but he also had these other things that made up who he was. He didn't sort of weigh down his work, if you will, with the expectation of creative fulfillment. Um, Noel writes, or tweets rather, in the 1980s, I read the book, Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow. I regret holding on to finding a a meaningful job after I graduated from college. I should have just settled, and maybe that would have prevented a lot of angst. And once I did get on my current career path, it had its ups and downs. I vowed not to make my job my whole life and maintained outside interests. The ideology of total fulfillment at work is used by corporate culture to extract labor. I I think it's worth mentioning, Simone, that, you know, we are um, in an era perhaps more now than than in the recent past where, uh, you know, employers are are much uh, more ambitious in the way they're trying to exploit us. Mm. Yeah, I think we particularly see this where you and I are based here in, in Silicon Valley, where we've internalized a lot of the rhetoric around work being the primary means we have to to change the world. I liked what the the writer wrote about settling, and I think often we think of settling as uh, a dirty word or leaving something on the table, but I, I'd like to kind of 
reclaim that word, if we will, and thinking about the value in understanding what your definition is of enough. And what I like about you know, the title of the book, The Good Enough Job, is that good enough is subjective. Maybe for you, it's a job that pays a certain amount of money. Maybe for someone else, it's a job with a certain title or in a certain industry. And maybe for a third person, it's a job that gets off at a certain hour so that they can pick up their kids from elementary school each day. But whenever you realize what your definition of enough is, it can allow you to transfer some of that energy that you might be spending wondering if there's something better out there into your life outside of your job. It can help you understand that your job is part of, but not the entirety of who you are. I like the clarity of Noel's thinking as well. It, it makes me think, Simone, you know, there's been a lot of talk about new technologies that allow employers to monitor employees, to spy on us and dictate output. But but especially for, for white-collar workers, many of us willingly give over our autonomy when we're checking email or Slack from home or on vacation. Of course, yeah. I, I mean, I've found this myself as I've started to work for myself. I'm the worst manager I've ever had. <laughs> I've internalized <laughs> a lot of the incentive structures and the metrics of capitalism, and I, I've risen and fallen with my own professional accomplishments. And yet, I think it's important to understand if you are a manager or if you are a boss, the value in being able to protect your employees' time outside of the office. Not only will employers who have a intentional, healthy culture attract and retain the best employees. But we all know this on a, a personal level. If you're on hour 11 of a 12-hour day, you're not firing at all cylinders. And sure, maybe at the end of a quarter or if you're trying to finish a big project, you might need to go above and beyond. But if we're thinking about the long view, if we're trying to be sustainably productive, there's an incredible value from a, from a business perspective in being able to live a more balanced lifestyle. Well, let's take another call now. How about Mark in Oakland? Hi, Mark. Are you there? I'm so thrilled to be able to speak with you. I will say, first of all, I was one of those people who won the lottery. Not only did I have a marvelous family, which I still have, but I had a job that many people drool when they hear about it. I did work in television for 40 years, specifically in game shows. I got to write, produce, create, sell. Went across the world in addition to doing stuff in this country, and all of that was great. And on certain days, on certain days, boy, it was a drag. But it's just like falling in love. There's somebody in your life, that special person whom you adore, and on certain days you don't want to be in the same room with him or her. <laughs> well, you're in for the long haul. And work for me brought great joy, and yet I realized it was not my entire life. And so when I was quite young and still working many long hours, I still managed to take the time to go to hospitals and do bedside magic for kids. And that brought me a joy that television never could. And at a certain point when the industry and I both decided that I was maybe too old for the business, I transferred what I learned in devising games that people could play on television, and I brought them to camps, medical specialty camps, for kids with life-challenging diagnoses. And at this point, I'm still pun. I'm 76 years old, and next week I will travel down to Southern California to go between two different camps, and on the way I'll stop out 
in Livermore to go to a third camp where I can take the skills that I developed over decades and I can use them in a totally different way. And I say this not with braggadocio. I say it with gratitude that I was able to take skills that were marketable and commensurable in one field and now use them in a totally different way. And there are people out there who are listening to this right now, and forgive me for the pontification. There are people out there right now who don't realize how talented they are, who have a skill that they've developed over the years, whether it's just a people skill of standing in the Sears store waiting to sell somebody a refrigerator, and they can use those same skills outside of what is called work, outside of what is called a paycheck. And that is the gift that was given to me, and I will use it for every day that I can stand up on this planet. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story. And listeners, you know, uh, take up Mark's challenge. What What's your story? How have you managed to, um, shall we say, take control of the narrative of your life and recognize what it is you bring to the table and recognize that the table may not just be where it is you work to make a living, work to pay the rent or the mortgage. Let's take another call now, Lauren in Oakland. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. Um, I, you know, to follow a little bit on what Mark was saying, I was fortunate enough to be able to start a business and run a business for 22 years. And um, one of the things that I was able to do with my business was to um, to be able to do some of that. I, I have a background in public policy and public health, and while my business had nothing to do with that, I was able to kind of run it as what we now know as a B Corp, although if we didn't really talk about that, you know, all those years ago, and um, offer jobs to ex-incarcerated and et cetera, et cetera, and get involved in my community in ways that I couldn't have done and I sought out more traditional work. But um, I did want to comment, I had the opportunity over the years to hire hundreds of people and work with hundreds of people. And I think as your um, guest has been so eloquently talking about we do such a disservice to people when we talk about when you look for work that you follow your bliss because not only is work you know work but all of us at work have to do the proverbial you know clean the bathrooms and help take out the garbage and wash the windows and there's lots and lots of chores that are part of our work day that are not all fun and not all enjoyable and if we're encouraging people to spend their day looking for bliss or having their their job (laughs) be about bliss We're doing such a disservice to our young people as we send them into the workforce because there's no such thing. Yeah. And all we're doing is 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 sending people out to find something that doesn't exist and they'll be constantly miserable. Mm. And 
looking, you know, to be like, well, why am I not like enjoying my whole day? And why, well, you know what I mean? It's just. It's, it's a, so unrealistic crazy. expectations. Simona, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate both Mark and Lauren's stories. And I think they point to a, a wider truth that's reinforced with the research. You know, the research shows that people who have greater self-complexity, which is just a fancy way of saying they've cultivated different sides of who they are, are more resilient in the face of adversity. This makes intuitive sense if your job is your identity and your boss says something disparaging or if you have a bad day at work, it can spill over into all other facets of your life unless you've taken an active role in cultivating those other sides of who you are. It also shows that people that have more passions and interests tend to be more creative and innovative workers as well. And so there's both sort of the business case and the moral one. The moral one being when we are able to cultivate other sides of ourselves, when we are able to invest with both our time and our energy into our local communities, into our relationships, into our relationship with ourselves, we are better people. And I think that's a really important point to underscore because not only does our work often take our best time, but it often takes our best energy as well. And if we want to be active citizens, if we want to be good neighbors or reliable friends, we need to water those identities with our attention and our energy. Friends, we are talking about the new book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, with author Simone Stoltzoff, uh, the author of it. Uh, Let me ask you the question, is there enough time in your life to do things and be things outside of your work self. We want to hear from you this hour. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or just give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro talking about 
Good Enough Work, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, the new book out by author Simone Stoltzoff. Uh, and we are taking lots of calls and questions and listener comments. Here's one tweet. I'm an artist and filmmaker. Late stage capitalism is the worst. I stayed in good enough jobs and I had an active social life, but no bandwidth to do my art. After my dad suddenly died, I quit my good art adjacent job. I'm so much happier having work be creative and morally fulfilling. I'm wondering, Simone, if you can talk about something uh, that's a feature of so many work lives today, the, the impact of gigification. How do freelancers and gig workers carve out work-life balance when they have to hustle so much of the time? Yeah, it's a great question. I was recently interviewing this researcher from MIT who studies dreams, and he performed this thought experiment with me that I'll try on the air with you right now. He said, imagine that you are in a hotel room and you're trying to fall asleep. Easy enough. Now, imagine you're in that same hotel room trying to fall asleep and the door to the room is wide open. If you're like me, your whole body is tensed up. And the point that he was making is that in order to rest and by extension to, to dream, we first need to feel safe. I think that is a great metaphor for the world of precarious gig work right now, is without the job security, without the reliability of a fixed schedule or a fixed paycheck, many workers are working in this state of perpetual fear or at least instability that is preventing them from being able to both rest completely and to dream about what they might want to do in the future. And so I think we saw a taste of this during the pandemic with an expansion of some of the, the social safety nets that hold us all up with the expansion of the child tax credit and with uh, renewed unemployment insurance. We saw just a, a modicum, just a little bit of social support from the government allowed people to leave jobs that were not good enough for them. And so I think often it's incumbent on the institutions that exist in our lives, not the individuals, in order to protect our lives outside of work. So often we hear advice about, you know, set a boundary or practice self-care. But the problem with these individually imposed interventions is that they inevitably break. A lot of times I think we should put the onus on both the companies and our government to enact the policies and structures that can protect employees' work outside. Well, with that, let's head back to the phone lines. How about Susan in Menlo Park? Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. How are you today? Thanks. Um, so I've been in a management position, not at an administrative level, but at a, a management position at Stanford University for School of Medicine for 35 years. And I'm getting ready to retire, but I've seen great um, swings in the workforce, especially in this last 10 years, and then also uh, as a result of the pandemic, by people coming out and having to get a job that's just good enough. Maybe they want Stanford on their resume. But we put people in these professional positions, and they're lower level, but they still make over sixty to $70,000 a year, and they come in, and they're just there for the eight hours. They're just there for the paycheck. And even when we offer 
chances to improve themselves with courses on DEI or courses on uh, improving science, because I'm in, in the science field of medicine, they don't take advantage of them. And, and it's uh, really been frustrating for me to have these people, the title of the book, The Good Enough Job, if we put people in jobs that are just good enough and they they don't think of their profession ever outside of work, um, I'm drawn to scientific journal reading and scientific books and reading when I'm outside of work because I do love my profession and I do want to see healthcare improved. And so when I'm seeing people just come in and out to say, well, this, this job's too hard, there's too much data entry, I'm bored, I'm really bored with this, I'm really bored with that, how are we going to get people that requ- that may require moving up academically? So how are we going to get those professional those professions to say, hey, I, I know it's going to require four more years of medical school, a residency, a fellowship, but I'm willing to work that hard and I'm willing to make not much money while I'm doing it. But eventually, if everyone only lands in a job that's just good enough, we won't have the professionals that are truly dedicated to learning in academics or whatever it requires. Uh, I have a son that is a counselor and, and is, tries to be an artist and make enough money to do his artwork and work, but he still cares for his profession enough to think about it outside of work, and it's not just a paycheck. It's it's not just a paycheck. What do you say to that, Simone? You know, like the the world needs people who aren't just punching the proverbial time clock. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the the question and and the call in. I think I agree to a large extent that the nihilist point of view, where you just treat work as a necessary evil, is not a recipe for fulfillment either. And we do live in a material world. We all have to work in order to pay for our material existence. I would just caution and say that some people work doing what they love and others work doing what they have to so they can do what they love when they're not working. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because we tend to revere the people whose identities and their work neatly align or the people who are very ambitious and always trying to move up on the proverbial food chain. And yet, the other approach is not always at the expense of doing great work. You can have work be more of a means to an end and still perform well and still take care of all of your responsibilities. I do think that some of the anti-capitalist or the anti-work rhetoric that we're hearing a lot of today is a bit of a red herring. There's a lot of cultural cachet with saying that, you know, work is bad or work sucks. And yet, work is a necessary part of life. I'll just cite one study that I write about in the book, which is, in some ways, a a devil's advocate case against my core argument. And these two researchers went into a line of work that you wouldn't think of as particularly meaningful. They interviewed janitors at a hospital. And it was through these interviews with these custodial workers that they found there was huge variation in how fulfilled people felt by their jobs. On one hand, you had one group of workers who felt their job wasn't particularly high skill. They didn't go out of their way to interact with many of their colleagues or the patients that they were serving, and ultimately were pretty down on work. And then the second group 
they went out of their way and interacted with more of the people that they were working alongside. They thought their work was of higher skill. But most importantly, they attached their work to a greater mission. They saw themselves as part of this healthcare system whose goal was to heal the sick. They saw themselves as, as an integral part of the, the healing world. And through that attachment to a greater purpose, they were able to find more pleasure in the menial or mundane aspects that exist in any line of work. The researchers call this job crafting. And I think we do have a lot of autonomy to, to craft the role our job plays in our life. But I think some people's way of crafting their job can be as a means to, say, support their family or a means to pay for the lifestyle that they want outside of work. Certainly, there are lots of people that do what they love and have found this neat alignment between how they make money and their personal interests. But I don't think that passion is always a prerequisite to do a job well done. Nancy writes, I learned from working as a lawyer for the Social Security Administration that work ostensibly in the public interest can be a disguise for rote work in large quantities. Another listener writes, I've already had one career shift from communications into tech sales and just got hit with the tech sector layoffs. After 20 years grinding in the corporate world, I haven't really found the kinds of financial rewards I thought were possible. I have a strong and rewarding identity outside of work, but we spend so much time working that I feel a need to have both challenge and joy in my work. I know I'll be working for at least another 10 years, but I'm having a hard time swallowing the idea of pursuing the same old grind. Um, Pursuing the same old grind, you know, I, I suppose it's worth noting, Simone, this, as far as we know, this is our one precious life. Yeah, we get a lot of pressure from that level of thinking. You know, I'm I'm reminded of that famous Anne Lamott quote about, you know, how you spend your days is how you spend your life. And yet, you know, if you take that quote in greater context, the point is not to hustle. It's not a manifesto for ambition or looking for promotions within the professional realm. In actuality, she's saying, you know, a day spent reading might not be seen as a beautiful day, but a life spent reading, that's a beautiful life. And I think we tend to lose sight of that sometimes. And for the tech workers that were just laid off, you can see that conflating who you are with what you do can be a a narrow platform to balance on. A market takes a downturn and all of a sudden the the company that you relied on to be your primary social community and your primary identity and source of meaning evaporates. And so I encourage listeners to really think about the ways that they can actively take a role in investing in their non-work selves, not just in the extreme case of getting laid off, but also because it allows us to be fuller, more well-rounded versions of ourselves. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myrowin for Mina Kim. Well, we've got a few more minutes left. Let's take a few more calls. How about Carol and Foster City? Hi. Well, I'm a little different than some of the others. I I worked for 50 years. I started at 16. I worked at City of Paris, if you remember that that company for mm-hmm. five years. I was a housewife for 10 years. I was a trial lawyer for 30 years. And then I had to quit because of a health problem. And I thought, ah, oh, I'm only 65. What am I going to do with the rest of this time? 
And so I went to the adult school and started teaching English as a second language. The most rewarding job in the world. Mm -hmm. People who really appreciated me. I could use all my knowledge as an attorney in helping them understand a totally new uh, environment. And believe me, they needed information on on housing, on driving, on their jobs, on accidents, on everything. I quit at 80 because I had another health problem that made me less effective as a teacher. And the last five years have been without that joy. But I can remember it, and um, it was very fulfilling. You know, it's it's interesting as you say that, Carol. S- Simone, I'm thinking that that a great deal of meaning, a great deal of satisfaction comes from being helpful, being of use to others. I definitely agree. And I think for some people, that's through the context of paid employment. And for some people, it comes outside of their formal job. I am so excited for you that you were able to find this Encore career that was so fulfilling And I undoubtedly believe that some of these other careers that you've had in your life helped make you into the educator that you have become. And I think for a lot of people, there is some sort of inciting incident, whether it's a layoff or a health scare, that can really lift the spell of workism and allow them to see a job for what it is, an an economic contract first and foremost, an exchange of your time and your labor for a paycheck. Certainly, it can be more than those things. It can be a means of service, of giving back, of of finding friends. I've certainly made lifelong friends through work and derived an enormous amount of meaning and identity through my job. But I've also come to see how risky it can be if it is the sole source of identity or the sole source of meaning or the sole source of making a difference in your world, because that can be taken away from you at any minute. Thank you so much for sharing that, Carol. Let's go to another call, Jackie, in San Francisco. Hi, Jackie. Hey, good morning. I wanted to call and just add something into the conversation. Um, I've worked as a nurse now almost 20 years. And, you know, as nurses, we, we sort of get out of school really young and we start working really young. So we're like forming this identity um, around this really important job. Um and then just like getting older, and especially that, um, I can't remember the word that the that your guest just used, but an event that sort of changes the trajectory of your career is like, you know, the lockdown and the pandemic. And we sort of were like held up as these heroes. And then by the end of it, we're like almost like these enforcers of rules. And so just sort of growing up and getting older and having this event happen and trying to sort of separate myself from the identity of what my career has been. What kind of what kind of answers has that led you to? I think it's been really beautiful because I have been able to sort of separate myself from this. I think people think of nursing um, and a lot of other jobs too as like this care work that sort of comes from the heart, but it's it's really highly skilled, really important work, and it doesn't actually have a huge meaning around who I am as a human being. It's kind of just a job that I do. So, so being able to separate that has really improved my mental health, honestly. And have you found yourself exploring other 
other parts of your identity more fully, maybe who you are in your family, maybe your creative interests? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, again, with um, because nursing is a union job, you sort of like get increased salary the longer you're working in this in this field. So I've been able to like have a little bit more time off. Um, and that has been also really wonderful, sort of the type of friend I want to be, the type of daughter I am, the type of community member I want to be. Um, and, and learning about that and having free time, more free time and more energy, like away from my job. Beautifully put. Thank you so much for sharing, Jackie. Well, Simone, we have just a couple minutes left. Uh, any last uh, advice, any last tip you, you would offer our listeners uh, who uh, wonderfully have been part of this conversation this hour? Yeah, Jackie, I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think it underlines an important point, which is that on the other side of prioritizing work is prioritizing life. So often we sort of treat work as the central axis around which the rest of our lives orbit and try and shove all the rest of ourselves into the margins. And, you know, it's hard to to deprioritize work or hard to lessen your feeling that your output is somehow a direct reflection of your self-worth. But what I found, and, and through some of my reporting for the book, is that the best way to do so is to take an active role in promoting other sides of who you are. So whether it's finding a community of people who could care less about what you do to earn a living, or it's finding a activity that you participate in, not to monetize or to try and become the best at, but because you get engrossed in the act of doing it itself. Trying to find these other aspects of who we are can create both better workers and better people as well. Well, Simone Stolsoff, what a pleasure it has been talking to you this hour on Forum. Uh, check out his new book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, and challenge yourself to think about how you want to remake your life inside and outside of work as well. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Mina Kim. Thank you to all of our listeners for all of their stories. Have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.